And today we're jumping right back in. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 8 is where we are going to be. Now, to be able to give us a running start to catch us back up in our minds, uh, let's just remind ourselves, refresh ourselves of what is happening here. Paul has written a letter to this church in Corinth, and he gives them a series of really strong rebukes for the way that they're acting. You have a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds, and they're now all coming under the banner of the Lordship of Christ Jesus. And because they have different backgrounds, they have different origins of belief and practices, they're bringing all of this baggage into the church and wondering how it comes under the Lordship of Christ. We see that there's been divisions in the church. We see that they've distorted the way that they view sex and relationships, how they gather as the church. Some are even denying the resurrection. And this morning, we are going to get to a passage on matters of conscience, of knowledge and love, and how the believer is supposed to respond in this way. And in their handling of all of these issues in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is going to tell them that their meetings do more harm than good. So it's very important for us to look closely at the words of Paul so that they can change and challenge us, they can shape our convictions and our conscience, that we can lead uh, our lives following the direction of the Holy Spirit and his word. Now the primary purpose, the primary purpose of Paul's letter is for the church to view everything through what God has done in Christ Jesus. And when we do that, we lay down our preferences, our preferences over practice or position, we lay down our own individual purpose, and we put it all under the banner and lordship of Jesus because he lives, we now live for Jesus. The truth of the resurrection and the hope of our physical resurrection changes how we do everything. And this is exactly where Paul's going to get at today in 1 Corinthians 8, transitioning to matters of conscience. Now, as we think about this passage, and if you've spent any time in this passage at all, this might be a section of scripture that just seems completely foreign to us. Paul is talking about meat that's been sacrificed to idols in the idol temple, and now people are wondering if they can partake in this meat, what does it mean for them, people in the church are, people in the church aren't, but if we try and apply this to our lives directly, where's the local temple that we're going and they're butchering meat for us? It's hard to find that one-for-one -one correlation here. But the emphasis of this passage for Paul is knowledge and love. Knowledge and love. And as we zoom into this issue going on at the church in Corinth and how Paul's instructing them, we'll realize that we are not so far off in how we need to look at our preferences, our convictions, our conscience, and how that relates to us within the church. You think about it, to say that the world is divided is an understatement. But it's not just the world, it's Christians. Christians disagree on almost everything, it seems like. On matters of government, politics, news, vaccines. Christians disagree on various matters of theology. Christians disagree on various views of Christian liberties. Is it lawful for a Christian to partake in alcohol? Is it lawful for a Christian to send their kids to public school, private school? Should we all homeschool? 
What's the best form of discipline for my children? How should we use our free time? What should we wear? How should we worship? And if you think about it, if you think about it, all of these disagreements and these divisions that arise in the church, if there's something that you did not like about Alpine, from uh, maybe my preaching or the way that we do worship or Sunday school or whatever it is, if there's something you did not like about Alpine, there is probably 100 churches in a 20-mile radius that you could go and find a particular set of pattern, a belief that aligns just the way that you like it. The question isn't, what divides us? The question is, what unites us? If you think about it, you know, we're a church here at Alpine where we have elders and deacons, we have Sunday school teachers that serve, and if you got me, Kevin, Jared, Eric, Melody, uh, Brother Hilton, David, and you, you put us all up here from elders to deacons, Guy, Cliff, Sunday school teachers, and you asked us our various opinions about different matters of theology and conviction, I would estimate that we would largely disagree on a lot of things. We've come to different conclusions about different things. So what is the rope that we hold? Do we gather here this morning because we're all Republican and we all vote the same way? Is that what holds us together? Do we come together here this morning because we take communion every Sunday and we think that that's the way that it's supposed to be? And if we did away with communion, then we say, well, I don't know if I can continue to gather with this church anymore. Is it because we still do Sunday school? Is it because we do life group? What is it that holds us together and what would cause us to drop the rope of unity? Paul's going to tell us today that the foundation in which we stand in is Christ Jesus. And if there's matters of conscience and conviction that this should not cause us to separate or divide, but to love and reason with one another. So before we, we jump in, let's ask why our conscience is important. We really don't spend a lot of time talking about our conscience or matters of conscience. We talk about matters of sin, but not really matters of conscience. So why is our conscience important? The first one here, uh, we're going to look at one reason. A good and clean conscience is critical for intimacy with God. Sit with that for a moment. A good, clean conscience is critical for intimacy with God. Look at Hebrews 10, He says this, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. You won't experience intimacy with God if your conscience is seared toward God. And our conscience can be seared in many ways. It can be seared in the practices and the convictions that we have. Or our conscience can be seared because we're plagued with guilt. For many of us, our conscience can be so plagued by the sins that we've committed years ago. And it still follows us. It still feels like this weight that's ever-present around us. It still feels like it's presently in us. Sins that you've committed years ago, you feel like you can't draw closely to God because how could he love you? Like, does, do you, you remember your sin? Doesn't God remember your sin? And our conscience is always reminding us of our guilt and our sin. And Hebrews is telling us 
Let us draw with the assurance of, that faith brings, that God loves you, that he's restored you in Christ Jesus. Have your conscience cleansed in this way. When you come to the Lord Christ Jesus in faith, he gives you his righteousness and goodness over you, and you can come with this assurance to him. For many of us, our conscience can be plagued by the feeling that we never live up to God's standard, that we're constantly letting him down, that we're not enough, that he can't be happy with us, and so it keeps us from him. How many family members or friends do you know that keep an arm's length distance from the church? How many times have you heard a friend say, if I walked into the church, lightning would strike me? It's their conscience. It keeps them away from drawing close to the Lord because they feel like they cannot draw close. They can't come near to him. A good, clean conscience is critical for intimacy with God. And how do we get that good, clean conscience? Only through Jesus. Only through him. And it's not because I work something up in myself or I, I do some righteous act or I abstain from some conviction or of conscience. It's because Jesus has finished everything on the cross that we sang this morning. It's finished in him. And because Jesus has done that and he loves us, we can come to Jesus with a good and clean conscience. Now, what is our conscience? And this, is a, um, this has been, been challenging as I've considered this because I, when we think about conscience and we think about sin, we can easily start to wonder where the line is divided. So we're going to go carefully through this in this passage of 1 Corinthians to see how Paul addresses matters of the conscience, what it is and how we deal with it. So I have a simple definition for us. Uh, what is conscience? Our conscience, I believe I do. If not, I'll read it for us. Conscience is what we believe. Conscience is what we believe to be right and wrong. Our conscience is our internal rationalization of what we believe, value, and understand. In order to see that here, let's unpack the eight times that we see conscience in 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at passages in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. I'll read for us. Starting in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7, uh, and we'll read through 13. It says this, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as being sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. 
All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of what? That of which I give thanks. So first we see about our conscience is this. Our conscience is personal. In verse 29 of chapter 10, Paul says this, I do not mean your conscience, but his. In this, we see that conscience varies from person to person. We have different convictions. We have different upbringings, how we were raised, how we were taught, how we were taught to think and process information. It's personal. Consider the Bible that you hold in your hand. If we looked at them all, we'd have various translations throughout the congregation. Some in matters of conviction, some in matters of conscience, some in matters of preference, some in the matter that you were raised. Now, our conscience is personal, but that doesn't mean that what we choose to believe as sin is personal. You see, the scriptures are clear on sin issues. Drunkenness, slandering, gossip, which means this, that our conscience is personal and our conscience is imperfect. If you have any question about whether your conscience is personal or imperfect, uh, when Jessica and I first got married, uh, it was evident that we came from two different homes with two different sets of convictions and practices. Uh, Jessica's family is very lively. They stay up late into the night. They drink coffee past noon, which is a sin to me. Like, I don't know how you can do that. But they'll drink it late into the night. They'll stay up to like 2 or 3 in the morning just talking. And then the next, on the weekend, they'll sleep in and they'll start their day and they'll go for it. Let me tell you, not the Willie family. We, we went to bed at 8 o'clock because we were getting up in the morning to do chores. And if you weren't ready to do chores, something was wrong. A famous thing I'd always hear my mother say is, if you're bored, I'll give you something to do. It's like, I'm not bored. I'll find something. You know, Just go for it. So when we first got married, we had this collision of two preferences. But it had been so instilled in me that it was a conviction for me. It was like, no, what are, what are you doing? Like, we need to wake up and start chores. Like, there was nothing necessarily to do around the house. It was just my conviction. And so Jessica will say what I would do is just start angry cleaning. So she would just be like enjoying her coffee, and I'm like slamming dishes, putting it in, because it's my conviction that we should be doing this. We have a funny story that one morning I woke up probably at the crack of dawn because that's what you're supposed to do. And I got on the roof because at the house that we live, we'd have pine straw all over it. And I had this electric blower and I was mad. I was angry. It was one of those angry cleaning moments. And I'm yanking the cord, trying to blow the pine straw off. And I knocked the ladder over. 
And it's like just far enough where I'm not risking this jump. Because if I jump and I fall and hurt myself, well, what's Jessica going to do? And of course, I left my phone inside. So I'm standing on the eve of the house yelling at Jessica to wake up and come pick up the ladder because it's like six. Of course, she's still asleep and I'm stuck on the roof. I ended up being stuck on there for an hour or two until a friend (laughs) drove by in the truck and saw me standing there. Who was in sin in that moment? Was it Jessica? Was it me? It's my, it, was, it was my conviction, but I allowed it to root anger in my heart. There's no right or wrong here. It's just a matter of conscience. It's a matter of conviction. And if we looked at each one of your marriages, I'm sure that we would have similar ways that there are matters of conscience that lead to different convictions in our life. Our conscience is personal and it is imperfect. No one is right all the time. We do not know perfectly. We do not see clearly. But there is one who is Jesus, and we're not him. Jesus is the one who sees perfectly and clearly. Our conscience and our convictions are built on a lot of different identities and things, how our parents did and did not do things, and how we interpret them within our communities. Which means this. Since our conscience is personal, it's imperfect, our conscience can change. First Timothy, Paul writes this, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So in using this language, what is it that we aim for? A good conscience. We are aiming for a conscience that aligns more and more with God's word and will. You may be free in your conscience and your conviction to practice certain Christian liberties. You may see it in Scripture that it's not a big deal for you to partake in X issue. But maybe during a time, you need to come off of that for the sake of your brother or sister. Which means our our conscience needs to be tuned. We need to tune our conscience in harmony with God's Spirit, knowing there are many thoughts we have or decisions we make where we don't have a direct word from God in the Bible. And this is hard. Because all of us want to do right, don't we? We we all just, we want it to be black and white. We want issues to be yes or no, up or down, left or right. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. But think of the issues that I mentioned er earlier, like eating or alcohol or exercise or medicine or vaccines or dating or marriage, when to marry, when not to marry, when to have kids. Parenting philosophies, children's schooling, teenage activities. Is it okay to date as a teenager? Entertainment choices, politics. All of these issues, all of these issues, have principles from God's word to guide us. But we don't have exact words from God about what to do in every decision. And this is why we have differences of conscience. And it can be frustrating because we want to follow God. We want to do right. But here's the good news. God has not left us alone. In his effort 
to follow him with a good, clean conscience, God gives us his Holy Spirit to guide and direct us. And this is why the first point that we made is so important. A good and clean conscience is critical to intimacy with God. Because when we are in seasons of sin, when we're in seasons of hardening or searing our heart towards God, we tend to pull away from hearing and pushing into prayer. We tend to listen to our own convictions, or this is just the way that my dad did it, and this is just the way that we're going to go and do it, and it's fine, just follow me, when the Lord might be leading us to do something different. Are you open to his spirit? Are you opening, are you open to being wrong? Are you open to change? And this is where Paul meets us in this passage. If you have your Bible open, flip back to 1 Corinthians 8. We're going to read the first few verses. Uh, Starting in verse 1, he says this, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us... There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So what's going on in the first church in Corinthians is that in these temples, this was the major place to gather for festivals, social gatherings, And what was often left over in the meat market was sold. And there are those in the church who have based their conviction that it's no problem for them to go and eat meat at the temple. It's no problem for them to go and gather at a social gathering because there's no other God but God. And so it's okay to go into the temple. It's not a big deal. But for others in the church, this is where they may have formerly worshipped. Maybe they still have family members there. And maybe it's a bad association for them. So when they eat meat, it's like it's sinning against their conscience because they cannot separate this as a sacrifice to a God and how they formerly lived. So which one is in sin? Uh, Is it sin? For Paul, on one hand, it's not sin to go and eat at the temple. He says, eat, drink, you are free in Christ Jesus. On the other hand, for some, although they are free to eat, they can't disconnect the temple and the meat, and so it burdens their conscience. It's a sin for them. For others, it's not a sin that they eat the meat, but it would be a sin if they do eat the meat and harm the weaker brother. And Paul says this is a sin against Christ. So what's going on here? It's a matter of conscience. Now, the emphasis on this chapter is that love is more important than knowledge. Love is more important than knowledge. Now, I can hear like, even as I type this out, I, I, I hear all the whatabouts. Well, what about this? What about that? And let me relieve you here, or rather let Paul relieve you here in what Paul says. Paul is not talking about tolerance. 
Tolerance in our modern day says it's okay to believe what you believe as long as what you believe doesn't make a claim about absolute truth. Tolerance in our modern day says let people live. Let people just find their own way. And in our modern age of an identity crisis where people are identifying as whatever, I don't know, it changes every day. Paul's not saying, well, that's okay, just tolerate it. Paul's not saying that at all. Paul is very clear on matters of sin and conscience. And notice what Paul says here in verse 5 and 6. He says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Paul is making the foundational claim of the gospel. So back to the earlier illustration, if I brought uh, Kevin and Jared and Eric and Cliff and Guy and our Sunday school teachers up here, and we asked, you know, different convictions of conscience about different things, I'm sure we'd be all over the map on different things, but what keeps us unified, what keeps us holding together, what unites us, it's this. Paul says, there is one Lord, the Father, whom we came and who we live, And then notice what he says about Jesus. There's one Lord Jesus from whom we came and who we live. You see the role, the the elevation of Christ Jesus to the Father for Paul. Paul says this is what unites us. In Scripture, there are are clear matters of sin. We just spent a lot of weeks on it in chapter 5, 6, and 7. Paul is very clear on matters of sin, but there are also matters of conscience. But this, who Jesus is, is an absolute. This is the non-negotiable. He isn't saying just love and that's okay, no matter what you know. No. Jesus, uh, Paul is saying the love of Christ Jesus and his affection and heart and desire towards you trumps all. And this love that you share in Christ Jesus is the one that you should extend towards brothers and sisters in Christ who differ from you on matters of conscience. So how do we, how do we handle this now? There are, there are issues, uh, matters of conscience that feel sticky and we don't know what to do with them and they, they give us different convictions on what to do. This is what we read earlier this morning. It's why I chose it for our responsive reading. It's Romans 14. I'm just going to read uh, the first few verses. Paul says in Romans 14, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. Now, Douglas Moo, in his commentary on Romans, he takes this word accept, uh, and the Greek behind it, he says there's a better translation for it, that it literally means to bear with one another, to enter into their weakness, to understand their position, to come alongside them in love and gentleness. And is this not the way of Christ? 
You see, it says, except the one whose faith is weak. It just makes it sound like, oh, just come on in. We'll just forget about it. We won't do anything or we just, we'll just ignore it. But that's not what Paul is saying. We don't ignore these things. We seek to understand. We seek to love and bear with one another. And is this not the way of Christ? Let me ask you this. Who do you disdain? Maybe you think, ah, there's nobody that I really disdain. Okay, so who do you not like a little? Who is it that just maybe gets on your nerves, bothers you? And when they do that, don't you just separate themselves, yourself from them? Maybe it's within the church and we separate ourselves from them. Did Christ not die for them? You see, what compelled Christ to come to the cross? Was it knowledge? Christ's knowledge of me is that I am the vile, filthy sinner. Was it his knowledge that propelled him to come to me and bear my burden? No, it was his love. It's Christ's love that propelled him to come. And so in this way, Paul tells us this same love of Jesus for us is what should propel us. So if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? This brother or sister who Christ died for is destroyed by your knowledge. Now, this is where I, I want to just take a moment, and this could be like an entire other sermon. Um, this, but let's just, we need to talk about this for a moment. And this is not for me. These are not my words. These are the words from Richard Hayes in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. And this is the danger of destruction through idolatry. When we read this passage about the stumbling block, the stumbling block principle is often erroneously invoked to place limits on the behavior of some Christians whose conduct offends other Christians with stricter behavioral standards. For example, it is argued that if drinking alcohol or dancing or dressing in certain ways might cause offense to the more scrupulous church members, we are obligated to avoid such behaviors for the sake of the weaker brother's conscience. This, in effect, holds the entire Christian community hostage to the standards of the most narrow-minded and legalistic members of the church. But that isn't what Paul's talking about. He's talking about believers being destroyed, drawn away from the church and back into idol worship. Therefore, in applying these texts in our time, we should be careful to frame analogies only to those situations. So here is what uh, Richard Hayes is saying, is that I can have, John, can have certain personal convictions and I can take these convictions and I can apply them strictly on everyone in the church. Consider if I stood up here and preached that the Bible tells us that we ought to draw close to God. So if you're not praying three times a day and fasting three times a week, you are in sin. And I take a general principle from the scriptures, but I apply my own conviction and put it harshly onto you. That's what Richard Hayes is saying that this is not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying that in the temple, 
that these idol worshipers would be destroyed in their faith if they saw someone eating the temple sacrifice. That their conscience is so weak that they have not fully grasped the extending love and mercy and gentleness and grace in Christ Jesus. So that it's up for the brother to practice these things with them by abstaining from meat. This is hard. This is difficult. Because there are a lot of preferences and convictions that for us are sin. And for other Christian believers, they don't view it as sin. And so we balance out these Christian liberties with gentleness, grace, and humility. Scripture is clear on matters of sin. And we need to shape and mold our conscience by what Scripture calls sin. We do not need to redefine what gender is. We do not need to refine what gossiping is or what slander is. We do not need to redefine what drunkenness is. Like Scripture is clear on these things. But there are matters of conscience where believers land in different places. So where does that leave us today? Here are two truths that we need uh, to settle in as we move forward. The first one is this. Followers of Jesus all agree on the foundation of our faith in Christ. Followers of Jesus all agree on the foundation of our faith in Christ. If your conviction is that Jesus Christ is not Lord, that he did not resurrect, that he did not die for the sins of people on earth, then you are not a Christian And we will separate and divide over these things. But if your foundation is on Christ being the only way to the Father, that he died, was buried, and rose again for the propitiation of our sins, for atonement for our sin, that we have grace, hope, and love, completeness in Christ Jesus, we agree on this foundation. So how do we respond here this morning? First, Jesus is um, how we come to a clean conscience. In 1 John 1, 9, he tells us this, confess your sin continually. What this does is it, it makes us to trust in God's grace completely. Trust in God's grace to cover our sinfulness. If we confess our sins, God is gracious and merciful to forgive us, is what John says. We need to have our conscience brought back to the convictions of Scripture and the love of Jesus. Some of us here have have seared our conscience. You've seared it by looking at things that you should not look or participating in behaviors that you should not participate in or you have continually just uh, used language that is free and maybe slandering to a brother or sister in Christ where you don't realize it anymore. You don't realize it that you're slandering or or gossiping or you've become seared to that. So our our prayer needs to be to come under the humility and the conviction of Christ Jesus by his word and by his spirit to lead us. You may be a believer here that finds that their freedom in Christ allows them to drink alcohol, but you may have been continually abusing alcohol. You might have allowed it to take you, swing the pendulum so far that you've not allowed anybody to speak into your life about it. Your conscience is seared by it. You need to be challenged and changed by the word of God and his spirit 
Here's the good news of, of the gospel, is that Jesus Christ died for the ungodly, and that he gives us his spirit that we may walk and live and serve and follow him. And like we, we talked last week, if there are matters in your life of, of searing your conscience or where you feel like your conscience is continually condemning you, know this, where it says that we have an advocate with the Father in Christ Jesus, that he lives to intercede for us. Christ is before the Father today interceding on your behalf and the sin that plagues you. If you are in Christ Jesus, he loves you. Come to him. Rest in what he's done for you. Now, in matters of conscience, the second truth, followers of Jesus at times disagree on the application of that truth in our lives. And these are matters of conscience. And it might be um, wise for you to take inventory of your life to say, is there matters in Scripture that I've seared my heart to? Or are there matters that I have um, lived in liberty and freedom that are harming my family or children or church? And then you need to repent and come to the Lord who is gracious and just to forgive you. He's faithful. He loves you. He will not refuse to forgive you. So this morning, the challenge of this passage here uh, is that I know, I know that as we're, we're preaching this, that there are matters of conscience that we all have. And you might be thinking, well, I wonder what John thinks about this. Or, you know, is this a sin or is this not a sin? This is, this is challenging. And so we come to the text with humility, letting the Lord dictate our lives, and the Spirit lead us. We respond humbly. We bear with one another completely. There are a thousand different churches that you could go to. This past week, I believe it was, this past week I was uh, on a podcast for some uh, students at LC. It's not one that's probably going to be that you can find. Probably wouldn't be good to listen to at all. But anyway, they were asking me, why are so many uh, young believers leaving the church? Or why are so many uh, Gen Xers leaving the church, not coming to the church? And there are many different studies. People say many different things. But I would say, maybe if we just looked at what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 8, is that a lot of times our churches are built on knowledge and not love. You see, you can go, you can watch church online and get knowledge. You can listen to podcasts and get knowledge. You can go to uh, a various denomination and get knowledge about a certain thing. And if, and if that's your goal, if your goal is knowledge, it will puff you up and you will be satisfied at either a podcast or online church. But if the goal is love, if the goal is love, it requires you to be here. It requires you to love one another, lay down your life for one another, and serve one another. And the goal is love. Knowledge is good. Paul's not throwing out knowledge, but the goal is the love and the love of Christ Jesus and loving one another in that way. Let's pray together. <clears throat>
Jesus, um, as I come to you uh, with the church here at Alpine in corporate prayer, I, I know in my own heart I am often satisfied simply with knowledge. I'm often satisfied simply with knowing a few things and moving on, but Father, I pray um, that that not be the case for us here at Alpine, that we be a people that love deeply because we understand and know the love of you. Father, help us to understand your love. Help us to understand where you're working. Father, this morning, if there's anybody here that is, is working through matters of conscience, they, they have overwhelming guilt of sin and shame, Father, I pray that they can understand the release and the relief that you provide in your atoning death for them. Make it personal for them. Help them to see the love that is in Christ Jesus for them, despite of their sin, that it was not the knowledge of them that brought you to them, but it was your love for them that brought you to them. It was for the joy set before you that you endured the cross. So Jesus, I pray that as we move forward as a church in Alpine and there are matters of preference and conscience and convictions, that, Father, we be quick to lay down our preference and our pride, that we seek to follow you uh, in humility and service. And, Father, when there are things that we disagree on, that aren't matters of first importance, that our love triumph, that the foundation of Christ be in what we stand, not in matters of preference. Father, as we um, close this service this morning, I pray uh, that we come to the table and accept the free gift of grace in Christ Jesus and the righteousness that you give. In your name we pray, amen.